Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. You're from Muncie? Why, yes. Do you know it? Conversations about collaboration, episode 38. Brad Stone is a senior executive editor at Bloomberg News. He joins me this week to talk about his excellent new book, Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. We talk about automation, HQ2, Prime Studios, fake reviews, Seinfeld, and the tension between creativity and analytics at the world's largest e-tailer. Let's rock and roll. Hey, Brad, congratulations on the new book. Thank you, Phil. I want to dive into this. There's so much to talk about, but I want to keep this focused on the work aspect of Amazon, which again, I'm sure could have been a pretty long book in and of itself. One of the first guests on my podcast is Bill Carr, who was on the S team. And reading his book, Working Backward, I was amazed at the level of scientific management at Amazon. And yeah, not completely naive, maybe 20 or 30%. I know that politics and preferences go on. There's some kind of favoritism. But it really struck me reading your book at how some of the big decisions really weren't data-driven at all, particularly, let's just say, HQ2. I'm fascinated reading, what was it, Raleigh, North Carolina, and was it Illinois or someplace in Chicago? Chicago, um, Raleigh, and oh boy, um, I'm forgetting, but you're talking about, yeah, the last three that the HQ2 team recommended to the S team before they just decided, we're not doing that, we're going to New York and uh, Northern Virginia. Right, which you know you could argue those are the you know, media slash uh, political capitals of the world. It makes sense, but certainly if you're putting in crazy hours to and gather all this data, process it, go through it to wind up with the quote unquote best solutions, right. only to have that overruled because you know maybe Bezos is going through a midlife crisis or something. Um, but that wasn't the only time. There were a number. And of by the way, it was it was Philadelphia was the third. Philadelphia. I, how you keep all that stuff straight is is beyond me. I mean, I'm reading the footnotes going, oh my gosh, how do you find that out? So I, talk to me a little bit about the culture there, because it does seem like data and analytics reign supreme, except if you know Jeff Bezos wants to create a single cow burger or something along those lines. Right. Well, it's, it's really a paradox at Amazon, right? That they That they run the company with data, um, they evaluate uh, themselves, each other, um, the success of their new products, all with data, with signals from from the customer, and yet intuition is prized, right? It's not, it's you know, it's it's not something that only you know Bezos gets to enjoy. Although certainly his intuition is valued above others, um, but when a customer complains. But when a customer complains about something, um, when somebody, any executive notices something that's wrong with the website or the customer experience, um, if they have an idea, they can elevate that, right? The the origin of Amazon Prime, this this is mythology inside the company, was in part because uh, an, an employee suggested that there should be uh, a shop, that Amazon should roll out a shopping club. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that like, they, they, they understand, and Bezos has said, that you, you kind of can't get to invention 
with data. You know, you need to use um, insight and intuition to kind of figure out what customers want. Now, a lot of times they're wrong, right? The single cow burger that you mentioned, that's a story that I tell in the book of Bezos reading a Washington Post story that said that the, that the average hamburger is made with hundreds of the meat from hundreds of cows. And he was saying we should do a single cow burger for Amazon Fresh. And I don't think it really went anywhere. Um, but the, the thing that accompanies this, this, uh, um, prized uh, in, uh, sense of, uh, around intuition is a tolerance for failure. So you can have ideas, you can have intuitions, even if the data doesn't support it. And then then you measure it, and you know it's either successful or not. Speaking of Amazon Prime, and I remember this from I want to say 2014 or 15. They were piloting a number of shows, but then they were asking for user feedback. Would you watch this if it would become a series? I mean, to me, that was the quintessential convergence of the left brain and the right brain, if you buy into that type of thing. Talk to me a bit about that, because I could see on one hand, from a business point of view, you only want to make a show if it's got a good chance of hitting. However, I'm old enough to remember Seinfeld and the ratings were so abysmal season one that if it wasn't for some VP at NBC saying, no, we're going with this show, you know, we wouldn't be talking about it 20 years after it went off the air. Right. Yeah, I, I have a chapter devoted to the evolution of Prime Video and Amazon Studios in the book. And the the origin of it is hilarious because it's Jeff Bezos looking at the way TV shows and movies are made in Hollywood and saying this the hit rate is abysmally low. And why don't we bring some science to the idea of picking the winners from the losers? And so literally Amazon Studios, they they carried business cards around with them uh, that that proclaimed it the scientific studio. And they they there were a number of different iterations of this idea that viewers would vote on what they wanted to see. And you could almost have use the internet as this ongoing test bed for ideas, even casting decisions. Well, I mean, most people listening, you know, will agree that that is not how creativity works. You can't collectively vote on whether things are good decisions or not. And there's all sorts of examples of things that like Seinfeld are breaking bad that aren't popular at the beginning and then are historically popular. And so surprise, not surprisingly, they kind of abandoned the scientific studio idea and became more of a conventional studio. But I think, Phil, you're you're really putting your finger on this this tension within the company of, of trying to systematize everything and bring science and data to everything. But then Amazon's expanding into these, into these categories where you really do need human intuition and creative people to guide you. And to the extent that Amazon has sort of, I think, been embattled in Hollywood and even in book publishing where some of its own efforts to create its own imprints, some are successful and the more ambitious things I would argue haven't been. I think it's because they brought a scientific mindset to these creative enterprises that they they haven't quite understood, at least in the beginning. Mm. Speaking of human intervention, I want to talk a bit about fake reviews. Um, I don't know if you've heard of or worked with at some point, Shira Oviday of the New York Times. I love her on tech newsletter. And she recently did a piece on fake reviews in Amazon, which to be fair is a thorny problem. One of my favorite exercises when I was a college professor was to ask the students, how could you spot fake reviews? And it's a very difficult question because in theory, you could say, well, it's only a verified purchase. So I say, hey, Brad, give me 50 bucks. I'll buy your book. I'll keep the change and I'll write a nice review, whether I read it or not. It's impossible to completely police Yet, by all accounts, it's completely out of hand. And you can only do so much, I would argue, with artificial intelligence and machine learning. 
Um, but it does seem to be affecting people's purchasing decisions. If you've got hundreds of fake reviews, how can you tell if they're legit? You're exactly right. And I'm right in the middle of it now. Um, you know, Phil, you've written a number of books, how important reviews are and how obsessive as authors we can be about our reviews. And yep, and I'm watching it and I've got reviews coming in. They're not fake. I don't think anybody would care enough to generate fake reviews, but one star review, book didn't download from Audible or cover was smudged. And you're like, are you kidding me? Um, look, I mean, Amazon, and this is a theme of the book, right? They've built these massive systems, often with people, um, employees, edit editors, uh, to, to nurture these systems and grow them to size. And then when they get the scale, they run them with algorithms and software, and they want them to be self-service because that is the way they will get operating leverage and the margins will be high and the business will be profitable. And the problem is that, you know, when you run thing, when the policeman is a robot, or a piece of software, it's easily gamed. And we, you know, the book reviews are a great example, but we see it across the across the company, you know, the, the chaos in the marketplace with um, counterfeits and, and fraudulent items and unsafe items, hoverboards that were blowing up, or in the transportation division, or drivers being pushed uh, to do dangerous things because um, they've got uh, such big goals, or in the fulfillment centers, as the recent New York Times story pointed out, how workers can be hired and then fired um, by by algorithms without ever talking to people. And I don't think there is an easy solution, you know. But but like these companies have to figure it out because they've grown to such size and reached such tremendous uh, market caps and positions of dominance in our society in large part because they're you know they the the ratio of their revenues to their employees is so high and favorable for them. So. Yeah, Amazon created the beast. It's a it's the story of Dr. Frankenstein, and now they have to tame it. Yeah, it seems like Amazon in this regard is facing common issues with Google and YouTube or Facebook and Twitter, and the algorithms can only do so much. And yes, if you're a prominent person like a former president, you can have someone watching those tweets to make sure that you don't go over the line. But you're talking about you know, hundreds of millions, or in the case of Facebook, close to 3 billion users. How do you do that at scale? And I know Zuckerberg is a big believer in artificial intelligence as, as if that will solve everything. Maybe he's right in the long term. Who the hell knows? But in the short term, there are real issues here. I, I think what Amazon is, is doing is basically de-emphasizing reviews. And that's pretty sad. But you know, you've seen ratings uh, kind of prevail over reviews in, in the way uh, and the way products are distributed. And then the 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 weight that ratings or reviews have in the search engine has been diminished. And I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this pivot to more ad-focused, ad sponsorship-focused search results, because they can't be gamed. It's basically pay-to-play. You know, whoever wants their, their uh, product to appear in that first page of search results is going to pay for placement. And the old algorithm that used to favor product sales and the strength of reviews, um, you know, is taking a back seat. So, you know, in some ways, I think the, the solution for Amazon has been very profitable. It's now contributing to what a $6 billion a year advertising business that's growing very fast. Yeah, I think it's the third largest behind Facebook and Google, right? I think that's right. Yeah. I think it was so big, if I remember correctly from the book, that they had to break it out. Not unlike AWS. They haven't done that yet. Okay. Uh, advertising is still kind of uh, hidden in the other category on the income statement, but um, you get the sense that, that that's in the future. They will start breaking that out at some point. 
Yeah, it just makes me wonder as I read the book, and again, having read the first, uh, the Everything Store, which to me was the definitive book on the subject. You know, how many? And I'd even ask my former students this: What business is Amazon in? I'd really like to know, because you could say it's kind of e-commerce, but then AWS, if Bezos or um, Jesse has spins it off, could wind up being worth potentially just as much, if not close to it. So if you're in the everything store, I mean, you know, again, I want to keep this focused on work, but it just makes you wonder if that's ultimately sustainable or even good. I mean, I get it. If you just focus on one thing, you know, Jim Collins would say, stick to your knitting. But what happens if you try to do that and the world moves and you're stuck to it, right? Your BlackBerry, your Kodak, whatever. Right. Um, I I can see how that day one mindset could be beneficial because it doesn't act like a start. I'm sorry, it doesn't act like a 25 year old company that's worth two trillion dollars. You know, on the other hand, you know, yeah, I love it as a consumer, but I don't love it as much as an author for some of the things that you mentioned. So it, it's a complicated relationship, right? Yeah, I, I feel like um, I mean, look, we, we I don't think we can diminish Amazon's success. It it is the the conglomerate that has somehow succeeded despite dispersing its attention across so many things. It defies an easy description. Um, I, I thought about calling this book the everything company because uh, in some ways it, it really is. Um, but um, you know, the fact that they've had such tremendous success, I, I think does conceal a valuable point, which you're raising, which is at its current size, it really is impossible for Amazon to satisfy all of its possible constituencies, right? We see the rise of a company like Shopify in large part because Amazon has catered to to third-party sellers um, and across the world created this um, huge tsunami of cross-border trade, and that has repelled brands that want a safe and protected experience, and they've run headlong into the arms of companies like Shopify. Um, and then, uh, you know, on, in the, on the book side, right, they, they've, you know, catered to consumers and tried to set low prices for ebooks and heavily discounted hardcovers and paperbacks. And, you know, and that's really challenged publishers who were Amazon's big first and largest partners and some authors. Um, and so I, I think we just see Amazon having now so many constituencies to feed that some will be are just naturally going to be alienated. Phil, you you remember in the book, I I was trying to kind of take the temperature of the sellers in the third-party marketplace, and I went back to all of the sellers who had been mentioned in Bezos' shareholder letters over the past 10 years, and they were all alienated. They were all pissed off. These sellers who had been heralded as the great success stories of the Amazon marketplace. So I just think Amazon has so many mouths to feed right now, and some are always going to be chirping hungrily and feeling neglected. Yeah, I mean, there's enough data out there that I'm sure you can find happy Amazon sellers and authors and unhappy ones. And it's funny, I was talking to an advertising guy for my new book, and he was telling me some of the hacks to get that ribbon of bestseller where you can list your book in nursing management. I'm going, well, that may be true, but my book has absolutely nothing to do with nursing management. So to your point about being too big, there's no way that you can count for every contingency and ultimately, some things are going to fall between the cracks. I guess the question is, what will Amazon do about it? Or do they have their hands in too many pots that they don't have the resources to fully address them? Well, it's not that they don't have the resources, because they do. It's that they don't want to. You know, we talked about operating leverage, um, running big scale businesses um, autonomously with software instead of people. I this might have gone by quickly, but I have a point in the book in, in the 2017 OP1 when Bezos is looking to cut costs. 
and he's in a review session with the retail division looking over everyone's headcount requests. And he basically says, when he comes to the book division, why would we ever need to hire more people for it? And it's a really illuminating moment. Um, he, you know, he, he feels like that business is at scale and they don't need to feed it anymore in the same way they need to feed the newer things like Alexa and Prime Video, um, new, new AWS services. Um, so it's, it's it, you know, they, they're, when the businesses get to, get to maturity, they're constantly tightening the belt and, and, and trying to drive down headcount and do more things with software. So I don't know. It would require, I think, a really big pivot on the part of Amazon to go and throw more people at the problem. There's just a conviction that they don't need to and that technology systems and algorithms should be able to solve these problems. It's interesting that you mentioned that, Brad, in the context of Alexa. Uh, for people who haven't read the book, and I highly recommend it for people who haven't um, read it, talk a little bit about how they solve that sort of um, chicken and egg problem. Right? How do you get people right. to use it if it doesn't have enough answers but it's not going to have enough answers if enough people don't use it. And, and yeah, what, that, would he throw right. it in his home or something? He'd throw it at the wall? Or... Right. The paradox is to, to create an AI system, you need data, but you can't get the data unless you roll it out, bring it out into the world. And you know, at first, they were beta testing it in the homes of Amazon employees, including Jeff Bezos. And that wasn't a very diverse data set. Basically a bunch of white white guys coming home after a long day of work talking to their device. Um, and, and, you know, Bezos had one, he thought it wasn't good. And so he was really challenging the team. And eventually, as I write in the book, they bring it out into the world uh, disguised and they rent homes and apartments across the country. And they're shrouding the very first Alexa in this acoustic fabric. And then they hire these temp workers to stream through these homes and apartments reciting um, you know, scripts and, and giving it open-ended queries. It was called the AMPT program. And that is how in late 2013, they accumulated enough data to make Alexa smart enough to then go introduce it into people's homes. But even then, if you remember, Phil, they were very cautious. It was, you had to sign up for a wait list. Um, and, uh, you know, and they didn't, they didn't release it all at once. They were very cognizant after the disaster of the Fire Phone, not to set expectations too high. Mm -hmm. But it does seem in keeping, though, with their motif of people being a temporary means to an end. Once we have the systems, once we have enough data, you know, people, if they don't go away, you're certainly not going to get any more. The difference is with these AI systems is there's always a, a, bit, a bit of a wizard behind the curtain element to them. Um, they still have big contract workforces in different parts of the country where if you ask Alexa something and it doesn't know or it's misinterpreting it, you might have someone actually listening to that exchange halfway around the world and then trying to make a change in the, in the Alexa system so that it answers correctly the next time. And when my colleagues at Bloomberg revealed that, I think it was about two years ago, there was an uproar over the idea that maybe people were listening. Well, you know, big shock, but there's probably people reviewing the video footage from your Amazon Go transaction and your conversation with Siri and Google Voice and Alexa. Um, this is how these AI systems are supposed to get smarter. I think it's an open question as to whether we really get to the point where you don't need those kind of workers auditing those transactions anymore. Sounds a little bit like Mechanical Turk. Exactly. Yeah. It's no. I don't think it's any coincidence that that Bezos uh, had the idea for Mechanical Turk very early on. Now, probably fifteen years ago, and has has used that now to to uh, provide some of the puppeteering behind these AI systems. 
Mm-hmm. It also sounds a bit like AWS. If we need infrastructure to run our company, rather than just look at it as a cost, maybe it's a source of revenue. Yeah, no, I think I think that's exactly right. Um, yeah. yeah, one of the insights behind the beginning of of cloud computing. Yeah. Any surprises researching the book? Or? I mean, there's just so many. Um, it's it's a story about transformation of Bezos and of Amazon. Um, the the whole story of the tangle between Bezos and the National Enquirer. Um, you know, just unraveling that. The fact that Bezos was is secretly building this 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 uh, three mast sailing yacht halfway around the world. That was a shock to me because I never thought he was a yacht guy. But finding that out was surprising. Uh, figuring out who the voice of Alexa was—that um, was a goal I set for myself. Could I figure it out? That was that was a, a great surprise. And then you know I, I have this whole chapter about the transportation division um, and and the guy Dave Clark, who's now running the Amazon retail business. I'm learning more about him, very much cut from the Bezos cloth, and how they figured out how to deliver packages without a UPS or a US post office. That to me was a really revealing chapter, not just how they they did it from a business perspective, but the personalities behind it, what was required, even in terms of fracturing personal friendships and you know being kind of ruthless inside the company was revelatory to me. Was that the guy who, I guess, had a falling out with his best friend, the guy who was best man at his wedding and they haven't spoken since? Exactly, exactly. because the guy accepted a job at Target, wanted to leave Amazon and go to Target and, they, and Amazon sued him. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, really interesting stuff. I, I really enjoyed the book, uh, book Brad. Um, get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? Uh, well, uh, Phil, um, I guess our listeners can't see this, but I'm I'm standing in front of my bookshelf. I, I did read Clara and the Sun, uh, the new Ishiguro novel. That is just tremendous. And then I just read, because I was on uh, a much-needed vacation last week, I, I read Project Hail Mary by Andy Weir, the new really science-based novel by the guy who wrote The Martian. And I loved it. I just love that stuff. And it was, it was, so I needed a little break from the, uh, the business nonfiction. Yeah. I don't blame you. Fun fact about Andy Weir, because I happen to know his agent. Um, do you know, and tying this back into Amazon, his whole, the way he got started? Yeah. He, he had the first couple chapters of his book on Amazon, right? Well, I think he was just blogging and people said, look, I would really like to read this on my Kindle. Okay. But you have to charge, I think something. So, all right, I'll charge a dollar for it or something for a chapter. And the demand was such that, you know, Matt Damon starred in his movie. Right. Yeah. yeah and, you know, that's, it's, it, we won't go on a tangent, but the fact that Amazon had one of the best publishing stories of the last decade on its platform, in its grip, and yet he nevertheless, you know, went a more traditional route when he started getting success, kind of, kind of tells you a lot. You also wonder if that type of story gives people false hope, right? You could be the next Andy Weir. Well, yeah, I could win the lottery. It's probably not going to happen. Or there's a woman named Amanda Hawking who did really well on that with a teen vampire type stuff, not my particular type of vodka, but yeah, anyone can do it. So they've certainly democratized publishing. On the other hand, there've been some negative effects as well as you, as you point out in the book. Brad, thanks so much for joining me. I really enjoyed it. All right, Phil. Good talking to you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. 
Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.